Well, in September of 1939, American preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse was invited to speak at a church in Ireland. Earlier that same week, German troops had invaded Poland. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain had responded by giving Hitler an ultimatum. Either withdraw by Sunday at 11 o'clock in the morning, or England would declare war on Germany. Well, just as Barnhouse rose from his seat to preach to the people that morning, he was handed a note. The note read, No reply from Hitler, the Prime Minister has declared war. The pastor turned and he whispered in Barnhouse's ear. He says, I hope you have a good sermon today. It may be the last one some of these men will ever hear. Talk about preaching under pressure. Well, Barnhouse used as his text that morning, Matthew 24, verse 6. He quoted Jesus. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. He went on to describe in detail the horrors of war. And after each account, he repeated the words, Don't be troubled. It sounded like this. Millions of homes will be broken up. Don't be troubled. Children will be torn from their mothers. Don't be troubled. Husbands and brothers will perish in battle. Don't be troubled. Innocent blood will flow like a river. Don't be troubled. Children will be left orphans. Don't be troubled. On and on this went. The tension in the room mounted. Finally, Barnhouse, he looks up to the heavens and he asks, Don't be troubled. These words are either the words of a madman or God. How can these words be spoken to men who have hearts that can weep? Unless Jesus is God, he has no right to tell us, Don't be troubled. Of course, Donald Gray Barnhouse went on to explain that Jesus is indeed God. Jesus is the God of history. He is in charge of every circumstance. Jesus is always at the wheel. He never dozes off. Though man's sin causes the horrors of war, God still controls human affairs. He uses even our evil for His glory. Yes, Jesus is God. Even in horrible times, like times of war. This is the book of Habakkuk. In times of calamity and tragedy, God is still in control. And according to Habakkuk, the just, people who are right with God, live by faith. The book of Habakkuk is a progression. You'll notice this from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3. It goes from wrestling with God, to waiting on God, to worshiping God. Habakkuk starts in a valley, so to speak. He climbs on top of a wall in chapter 2. He ends up on a mountain in chapter 3. He begins with a sigh. Then he, he seeks the Lord in chapter 2. And then finally he sings in chapter 3. He starts out in turmoil. He learns to trust, and finally he rejoices in triumph. You see, the book of Habakkuk begins with a sob, and it ends with a song. It's a book for everyone who has seen evil in the world and asked God why. Habakkuk begins, 
with the prophet grieving over the injustice that he sees. Verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Now the Hebrew word translated cry, it means to roar or scream. And Habakkuk is so frustrated with life, he just wants to scream. All he sees is injustice and evil around him. Verse 3. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention rises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. The wicked prosper and no one stops them. And that bothers Habakkuk. Bothers me too. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Now here, here's what has perplexed the prophet. Habakkuk was a Jew living in Jerusalem around the year 600 BC. And he was watching a mighty army from the east. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians. He was watching this army roll unhindered into God's land. They had plundered the homes of hardworking families. Crops and fields and stores had been confiscated. Judah, in essence, was under military occupation. See, let me give you a scenario to think about. What if America was the weaker nation and Mexico was the world's sole superpower? And without any provocation from the United States, the Mexican army crossed the border invaded our cities, helped themselves to our land and our houses and our streets and our businesses. Suddenly we couldn't move without getting Mexican approval. Freedom vanishes. Our laws become irrelevant. Might now makes right. Would you scream for justice? Would you voice a complaint to God? I'm sure you would. You see, Habakkuk has made the startling discovery all of us make at some point. Life isn't fair. Has that dawned on you yet? Life isn't always fair. I mean, the day comes when, when life just reaches up, slaps you on the face with inequity and injustice, and there's nothing you can do about it. And what adds to the prophet's frustration here is God's silence. Habakkuk screams, but God refuses to answer. He's bothered by the fact that God seemingly isn't doing anything to restore order here. I mean, when will God punish the wicked? When will he protect the righteous? Habakkuk wants right to make might. God finally breaks his silence here in verse 5. He says to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. You see, Habakkuk assumed that Babylon's rise to power was somehow due to God's inactivity. The bitter and hasty nation was advancing against God's will. But that's not the case. In fact, just the opposite was true. 
God says he was raising up the Chaldeans. He was using this sinful nation as his agent on the earth. This blew Habakkuk's mind. It was easy for him to accept the, the idea that God had fallen asleep. That God was, had dozed off at the wheel. I mean, why would a holy God use wicked men? This has baffled Habakkuk. You see, God's actions were never, neither understood or appreciated by the prophet. As God said, he was working in a way that Habakkuk would have never imagined. And you see, this is our problem, isn't it? We too make assumptions in our dealings with God. We, we expect God to work in certain ways. In our way. At our time. According to our plan. To carry out our agenda. And when God doesn't, our faith gets tested. Do you trust God's wisdom even when it contradicts your own? Oswald Chambers writes, Faith is the deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. You see, seldom does faith see all that God is doing. God does so much behind the scenes, under the surface. The facts we do have aren't always understood. And at times, what we see God up to, we don't like. And yet, faith still trusts in God. You see, never in a million years would Habakkuk have thought that God would use an evil and idolatrous people like the Chaldeans. This threw a wrench in how Habakkuk thought God operated. The question becomes, will he still trust in God's goodness despite the strangeness of God's methods? Well, verse 7 through 11 describe why the Babylonians were the least likely nation to be used as God's instrument. It talks about, uh, about their characteristics, how they were vile and vicious, how they were violent people, how they lacked morality and dignity. They were boastful. And to top it all off, they gave their false gods and idols credit for their military triumphs. And I'm sure Habakkuk thought, surely the one true God of all the earth will never allow a victory over his people to be attributed around the world to the power of an idol. God will at least take care of his reputation. You see, God's reply to Habakkuk had provided him more questions than it had answers. That's why Habakkuk prays to the Lord again in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Again, this puzzles the prophet. Habakkuk knew that Judah had sinned and needed to be judged. But by the Babylonians, they were worse than the people they were used to judge. Yes, Judah sinned, but compared to the Babylonians, they looked like saints. It just didn't seem fair or right to Habakkuk. I mean, he's thinking, God may be at work in the world, but to me, his ways don't make sense. Sound familiar? 
Have you ever been in Habakkuk's place? Have you ever wrestled with God over what he was doing in your life? See, Habakkuk is wrestling. He's struggling. God is at work, but he's not running the world the way Habakkuk expects a holy God should run his world. He's upset that God isn't acting the way he thinks God should act. And chapter 2 tells us how Habakkuk resolves his wrestling. Verse 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. So let me ask you. What do you do when your life doesn't make sense? When your conclusions become confusion? What do you do when your life goes haywire and you can't square horrible circumstances with the loving God who allows them? Well, each one of us has a choice. You can jump to conclusions. Oh, God let me down. Oh, he just doesn't care. God must have taken the day off. Oh, God's hands were tied somehow. You see, you can jump to the wrong conclusions or you can climb to the right perspective. And Habakkuk chooses to climb. He ascends to the ramparts. He goes up on top of Jerusalem's walls. Now, the walls of an ancient city... They were strong and they were thick. There was room on top of the walls. In fact, the top of the walls of a city became a road around a city. There were towers and lookouts and combat positions where soldiers could take up defensive positions to counter coming invasions. Walls were a vantage point. And in climbing to the top of the walls, Habakkuk was rising above the circumstances that perplexed him. He was getting above it all to seek the Lord. He was slowing his life down and and, and getting on top of things. He was taking time to listen to God. And you see, you can do the same. In fact, I suggest you do the same. You can humble yourself. You can admit That even though there's much about God you don't understand, that doesn't make him any less God. You can wait on God to teach you and to work in your heart and speak to you lessons that you wouldn't learn otherwise. You see, when life throws you a curveball, you can jump or you can climb. You can jump to faulty conclusions or you can climb to see the glory of God. You see, Habakkuk climbs to his knees. And I got to tell you, that's the highest climb any man can make all the way up to his knees. Hey, when life gets tough, do you fold your faith and quit on God or do you fortify your faith and grow in God? Habakkuk chose the latter. Literally, the latter. He climbs above his confusion to wait on a word from God. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk demonstrates four attitudes in his waiting on God that I think we should emulate. First, his determination. Second, 
his isolation. Third, check out his expectation. And then fourth, his humility or his humiliation. First, notice his determination. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. He implies that he's not coming down until he hears from God. I mean, Moses fasted for 40 days before God spoke to him. You remember Daniel, he prayed for three weeks before the angel finally broke through and victory was won. Why is it we pray for five minutes and if we don't get an answer, we turn on Sports Center? Or we call a friend? Or we go to the mall? Hey, when you seek God, show some determination. Secondly, seeking God involves some isolation. You have to set yourself apart. You have to get away. Habakkuk climbs up on top of the walls. Away from the hustle and bustle in the streets. Away from the clamor of the markets. He ditches all of the distractions and he gets alone with God. Whenever I go to Jerusalem... I always like to walk the walls. In fact, the walls of Jerusalem are my favorite, favorite spot. You see, Jerusalem is packed and congested and compressed. Its cobblestone streets are narrow and busy. One of the ladies on our, our recent trip, she told me she was hoping that we'd all slow down in the streets and just spend some time in prayer and reflection. In Jerusalem streets, the goal is not to slow down. The goal is to protect your wallet. To make sure somebody doesn't snatch your camera from you. No, the place for prayer and meditation and slowing down in Jerusalem isn't the streets. It's the top of the walls. On top of the ramparts, there you find serenity and quiet. Below you, you hear the noise. But on top of the walls, you're above it all. There's no ceiling. There's nothing between you and God. Here's the place to quiet your soul and listen to what the Spirit of God might say to you. This is what Habakkuk did. He went on top of the ramparts. Once a Native American left the reservation to visit New York City. He and a friend were walking down a busy street when he stopped. And he said to his buddy, he said, I hear a cricket. His friend just laughed at him. He said, that's impossible. Not with all the shouts and the buses and the cars and the ambulances and the pedestrians. But the Indian insisted. He said, no, I hear a cricket. After a short while, he walked over to a planter next to an entranceway. And he took his hand and he dug down into the dirt. And sure enough, he pulled out a tiny little cricket. Well, his friend was so impressed, he said, man, how did you hear a cricket in the midst of all this noise? And that's when the Indian answered, it's all in how you train your ear. He said, watch. He reached in and he pulled out of his pocket a handful of quarters and dimes and nickels and half dollars. And he dropped them down on the pavement. Instantly. Everyone within a block stopped what they were doing and turned in his direction. They all recognized that sound. The Indian was right. We hear what we train ourselves to hear. And this is why Habakkuk climbed 
on top of the wall and sought a quiet place. He wanted to train his ear to hear the Lord. We should follow his example. Notice too Habakkuk's expectation. He, he says, watch, watch to see what he will say to me. In other words, the prophet is expecting here God to meet with him. He's expecting God to speak to his heart. Now let me ask you, when you pray, do you pray with a pen and paper in hand? You should. Do you expect God to speak to you? You know, whenever I take time out of my busyness and get along with God, I'm always ready to write down the direction and the ideas that He fills my mind, that He gives to me. You know, I think you'll find that God speaks to expectant hearts. And then fourth, pay attention here to Habakkuk's humility, his humiliation. Notice he says he's concerned about what I will answer when I am corrected. Habakkuk expects to be corrected by God. When God does speak, it's going to be a word of correction. You see, maybe this is why so few people take time out to listen to God. They don't want to be corrected. They, they don't want to be told that what they are doing or thinking is incorrect. You see, when I approach God, I should always remember. He is the coach. He is the teacher. I am the student. You know, not once have I ever enlightened God on a subject or situation. Not once. Never have I told God something He didn't already know. You see, God corrects. I listen and I learn. Habakkuk climbs up on the walls to wait on God. But he doesn't have to wait long. For in verse 2, he tells us, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. God's word will come to pass, but it may take a while, Habakkuk says. You see, you don't always reap in the same season that you sow. This is why we need faith and patience, the Bible says, to inherit God's promises. And, and this is true with the vision that God gives you and that God gives me. You see, God shows us His plan, but it's not poof, presto. It doesn't just happen instantly. The vision that God speaks to our hearts may take some time. Sometimes months or even years to unfold and to develop and to come together. This is why it takes faith and endurance to hang on long enough for the vision to be fulfilled. And this is why God states in verse 4, He says, Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. In the end, God sees to it that the proud are punished, that the just will live. But in the meantime, it takes faith to believe. And the just shall live by his faith. What a vital vision. You see, Habakkuk had been living by sight. But he couldn't see God's hand at work. He had been living by logic. 
But what God was doing didn't seem to make sense. Emotion had governed Habakkuk. But he had screamed out in frustration. You see, the prophet's circumstances didn't look right or seem right or feel right. Yet to God's people, none of that matters. For the just don't live by sight or by logic or by feeling. True believers choose to live by faith. Do you trust God's word in your situation? Regardless of what you see or think or feel, are your attitudes and actions based on what God has said to you? They should be. The just live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is one of the most strategic verses in all of the Bible. In the 3rd century AD, a Jewish rabbi named Simlai observed that Moses had given Israel 613 commandments. That's 365 negative and 248 positive if you're counting. Simlai noted though, in Psalm 15, David seems to have reduced these commandments from 613 down to 11. He also noted that in Isaiah 33 verses 14 and 15, these 11 commandments were reduced down to 6. Then Simlai brought up Micah 6 verse 8 that compresses these commandments down to 3. We studied these a few weeks ago. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But Habakkuk takes it the final step. For he packs all of God's requirements into one single solitary statement. Chapter 2 verse 4. The just shall live by his faith. This is the passage that revolutionized the life of the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4 three times, mind you. Romans 1 verse 17, Galatians 3 verse 11, and Hebrews 10 verse 38. All agree, the just shall live by faith. The emphasis in Romans is, the just shall live by faith. A person doesn't become just or right with God by doing good deeds or by performing religious rituals. No, God declares a person just because they have faith. That's how a person gets saved. The stress in Galatians is the just shall live by his faith. It's not the works of the law that we trust in that make us just. But it's faith in the work of Jesus. The accent in Hebrews is on live. The just shall live by his faith. We both obtain but we also maintain a just standing with God. Not by grinding it out or sweating it out. But living by faith. To a believer, faith is a way of life. You see, Habakkuk 2 verse 4 was the seed from which all the New Testament sprouted. And this one verse set in motion history's greatest revival of Christianity. In 1509, a monk from Germany named Martin Luther, he journeyed to Rome. You see, this Luther, he was a troubled man. He was tormented by a guilty conscience and feelings of unworthiness. And he sought to answer the question, how can I win favor with a holy God? He tried to achieve his goal through self-sacrifice and self-denial. I mean, the man would fast for weeks on end. When the temperature dipped below freezing, which happened often in Germany, 
He would sleep outside without a blanket to torment himself. Luther would even beat himself black and blue trying to suffer enough to work off his sins. Finally, he embarked on a pilgrimage to Rome where he planned to crawl on his knees up the long sacred staircase there in St. John's Cathedral. He even whipped himself as he climbed, trying to pay the penalty of his sin. But halfway up those steps, this verse, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, suddenly popped into Luther's mind. The just shall live by his faith. And suddenly it hit Martin Luther. There was nothing he could do to earn God's favor. That Jesus had done all the work. That all his efforts had been in vain. That all God was asking of him was to believe. Luther got up from his knees that day. Went home to Wittenberg. And the Protestant Reformation was born. Seven words changed the modern world as well as the first century. The just shall live. By his faith. When Habakkuk saw God raise up the evil Babylonians as a tool of his judgment, his faith almost slipped. He couldn't believe that God would use an idolatrous nation worse than Judah to judge his own people. And that's why Habakkuk had to live by faith. Hey, God's ways are not our ways. And yet God can be trusted. He always does what's right. God has proven countless times He never makes a mistake. He'll use Babylon to judge Judah and then He'll call up another nation to judge Babylon. And that's what the remainder of the chapter predicts. The vision that God tells Habakkuk to write down is the future judgment of the wicked Babylonians. Beginning in verse 5, God denounces the king of Babylon for his wicked ways. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. You can read of his arrogance in the book of Daniel. He was bloodthirsty. He was intoxicated with pride. He was a man hungry for conquest. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar reminds me of the former Hollywood starlet. She was 70 years old when she died in her apartment. And here's how she died. She was getting down a box of old press clippings to remind herself of her former beauty and stardom and popularity. When the box fell on top of her, crushed her, and she died. I guess you could say she was pressed to death. But God assures Habakkuk here that Nebuchadnezzar will also die because of his pride and because of his arrogance. In chapter 2, five woes are pronounced against the king of Babylon. He's condemned for his greed, for his evil gain, for his gore and violence, for his guile or deceit, even his gullibility. How dare him give credit for the victories he's won to mute idols, nothing but chunks of wood and stone. God closes his curses on the king in verse 20 of chapter 2. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Nebuchadnezzar chased after false gods while the one true God was abiding in his temple. Now chapter 3 verse 1 states, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. And the meaning of this word Shigianoth is unclear. It, it appears in Psalm 7. It could be a musical notation. It could be an instrument that played music. 
Either way, it means that chapter 3 is a psalm of Habakkuk. I told you, this book begins with a sob, but it ends with a song. And verse 2 articulates the prophet's faith. He says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. When Habakkuk first heard of God's plan, he was alarmed. But now he trusts God's ways. He trusts that they're right. Even in the midst of God's wrath, he is sure that God won't forget to show mercy to his people. You see, Habakkuk had come a long way in his faith. He had learned a lot on top of the ramparts. And in verse 3, he tells us, God came from Teman. The Holy One from Mount Paran. And the next few verses depict the coming of God to judge the nations. And let me give you a few excerpts. His glory covered the heavens. Before Him went pestilence. He startled the nations. Mountains were scattered. Verse 9 tells us, Your bow was made quite ready. The sun and moon stood still. Sounds like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Verse 12, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You see, the Lord was coming to judge not only Babylon, but all of the nations of the world. And most scholars see Habakkuk 3 as a reference to both past judgments, but also judgments yet future. There's a parallel chapter, Isaiah 63, you can read it later, which describes the second coming of Jesus when our Lord returns to earth to judge the wicked nations. And like John in Revelation 19, Isaiah sees the robe of Jesus splattered and stained with the blood of his enemies. He is brandishing a sharp sword. In essence, he's locked and loaded. Jesus comes to spill the blood of those who resist him. I imagine John Wayne, Chuck Norris, and Jack Bauer all rolled into one. That's the returning Christ. Terrorists beware. Hijack God's glory. Rob him of his rightful place in your heart. Act like you're your own God. And it won't go well for you when Jesus returns. Isaiah 63 sees the Lord coming out of Basra. Habakkuk witnesses the very same vision. Teman is another name for Basra, land of the Edomites. Now here's the point that God is making to Habakkuk. This is what I want you to see. Here's the point. God is saying, I win in the end. That's what he's saying. That God will win in the end. You see, life is like a suspense novel. Kathy hates for me to do this, but I have to confess, I, I do it at times. I, I'm reading a book, a, a novel. The tension builds, it builds, it builds. I get, I get kind of anxious about it. And so I flip over to the final chapter. And I read a little bit of the last few pages to kind of figure out how the plot ends. And then after I've read it, I can go back to where I was and I can enjoy the story without more anxiety in my life. 
Well, certainly Habakkuk was upset that an army was about to invade Judah. But in this vision, God takes him to the end of time to see that ultimately his son will prevail. In the end, God's people do prosper and evil is punished. And when Habakkuk sees it, trust me, that night he slept better. And you will sleep better too. When you read your Bible, today life is a struggle. But man, read your Bible. Read the final chapter, the revelation of Jesus, and you'll see that Jesus wins in the end. And with that assurance, we can all sleep better. And we all can live confidently. In fact, with that assurance, we can enjoy God's peace even in the midst of frightful, confusing circumstances. Once a discouraged man was taken by his friend to the RCA building in downtown New York. His friend showed him the statue of Atlas holding the globe, the earth on his shoulders. The ancient muscle man had a grimaced face. His bulging muscles were about to break. You see, the weight of the world can grow pretty heavy at times. Afterward, he escorted his friend across the street, across Fifth Avenue there to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there below the altar, there's a small shrine dedicated to the boyhood of Jesus. And there he showed him a statue of Jesus. As an eight or nine-year-old boy, he's composed and calm. His arm is outstretched, and there in the palm of his hand rests the entire world. Right in the palm of his hand. You see, in the beginning, Habakkuk was like Atlas, trying to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. But at the end of the story, Habakkuk accepts his place on the globe. And he puts his trust in the God who is in total control. Now, I love how the book closes. In verses 17 and 18, Habakkuk's faith reaches a crescendo. He says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You see, he's just mentioned the effects of a foreign invasion. And yet Habakkuk is going to trust God come hell or high water. He can rejoice in good times or in bad times. In essence, we could say when the economy dips or when we get laid off or when we can't find work or when we get diagnosed with a cancer or when a friend dies unexpectedly or when our marriage struggles, even then you can say with Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Read your Bible. You win in the end. If you know Jesus, if you follow Him, in the end, you will win. Verse 19 closes. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And He will make me walk on my high heels. A deer has the uncanny ability to move along mountainous cliffs and rocky terrain. He's able to keep his balance. He never slips. And likewise, all Habakkuk has to stand on here is a vision. Yet God enables him to stand. 
like a mountain deer? Do you want to dance in the midst of danger? Do you want to live peacefully and gracefully on top of your problems? Do you want to enjoy enjoy stable footing even on shaky ground? Do you want to go from sighing to singing? If you do, then stop jumping to the wrong conclusions and start climbing to the right perspective. Seek God. See what He might say to you. And by all means, learn this truth. The just shall live by his faith.